All right, guys, continuing the tradition of fantastic guests on The Sad Truth, I have the distinct pleasure today of welcoming Rahil Raza, who I'll, describe, I'll give her biography in a second, but let's say hello. How are you doing, Rahil? I'm good, thank you. Great to see you. It is great to be here, and it's great to be inside on this cold, freezing day outside. <laughs> well, I will be leaving to Southern California in two weeks, uh, and so hopefully if I could tough it out for another few weeks, there'll be some respite. Lucky you, yes. <laughs> so let's, uh, for, for those of you who may, for, for, for our viewers who may not know you, I'd like to give a bit of a background, then you could fill in uh, the rest. So some of your books include, I love some of these titles, here we go. Uh, Their Jihad, Not My Jihad, exclamation point, a Muslim Canadian woman speaks out. And then there's a How Can You Possibly Be series where you have, How Can You Possibly Be an Anti-Terrorist Muslim? Question mark. How Can You Possibly Be a Muslim Feminist? Uh, you were one of the, 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 the folks who led the movement for mixed gender uh, praying at mosques, not unlike, I'm guessing, and maybe you'll talk about this after, what uh, Asra Nomani has done in the United States, and I had her on, on the show as a guest. Uh, you're a board member of the Muslim uh, Canadian Congress, and you were a participant and the narrator of a fantastic documentary, which I've seen, 2013 documentary, Honor Diaries. So you've been busy. Yes, I've been very pleasure, busy. Pleasure and, having you. And today I have my own organization. It's called the Council for Muslims Facing Tomorrow. Right. I am president. We formed this about four years ago. So that's our claim to fame. Now, is this, is this restricted, I mean, the sphere of influence to Canadian Muslims or it's an international organization? Oh, it's an international organization. Gotcha. It's so, global to everyone. Now, so you started, I mean, you're, you're born in Pakistan. You came yes. here in the late uh, 80s. Yes. Uh, you're uh, of Muslim background. You're a practicing Muslim till today, right? You don't consider yourself an ex-Muslim by any... No. Right. Okay. So we'll talk <laughs> about much, that. Very much a present Muslim. A uh, present Muslim, not an ex-Muslim. Because I've had some ex-Muslims on, Sarah Haider, who you may know, uh, yes. Ali Rizvi. And so I've, yeah, so I've had a whole bunch of very, very interesting uh, Muslim reformers, some ex-Muslims, some practicing... I had Salim Mansour on recently... I'm hoping yes. to also have Tariq Fatah. So these are some of the secular liberal uh, Muslims that certainly enrich the Canadian. Well, uh, Salim Mansour is on our board of directors for Muslim oh. Facing Tomorrow and uh, somebody that we really respect and admire, such a wonderful historian. He's fantastic. He's lovely. Yes. Uh, so how did you, I mean, was there a particular cat catalyst in your own journey that made you decide, hey, I need to lend my voice to this grand discourse? And if so, what was it? Well, Dad, I've been an activist, I think, my entire adult life. You know, this is something which comes when you question the status quo. Uh, growing up in Pakistan, uh, you know, it was a situation culturally where women were supposed to be seen and not heard. It's a patriarchal society, um, although I in a very uh, modern liberal household, uh, household, but, uh, you know, there was always the questioning of the status quo, you know, why is it that, uh, you know, things are different for boys and for girls, and I was always in trouble, of course, uh, but um, essentially when we came to Canada, uh, which is, you know, approximately about 28 years ago, uh, this was my first experience with individual freedom. 
I mean, we came to Canada to embrace a liberal democracy, gender equality, freedom of voice, freedom of choice. And my, you know, it, it, it sort of hits you like, like, like a, a lash in the face because you're not used to it. Uh, you know, you come from, from an oppressive society into a place where there is so much freedom. And uh, it took me a while to realize that, you know, I can write whatever I want. I can say whatever I want. And that was a time when um, Islam and Muslims were something that was out there. Uh, you know, people knew it existed, but nobody was particularly interested, one. And secondly, they didn't really know that much. So I started writing in uh, the local newspaper about cultural things, a sort of an education piece. That, you know, hey guys, we're coming here in hordes as immigrants and it would be nice if you got to know us a little better. And my focus was on Muslim women because it has always been, uh, you know, the issue of human rights in, in general, but women's rights in particular has always been my forte. And I, you know, was doing this in the Middle East as well. So I started writing. And, you know, with that, of course, as, as you know, when you when you get into a major newspaper, there's media. So there was connections uh, with other media and it became a very, very interesting interaction. And then 9-11 happened. Now, I would go back again and say that before 9-11, we, when I say we, my husband and I and the people that we work with, we're already beginning to see signs of radicalization in our home country, Pakistan, because the on the backs of petrodollars from Saudi Arabia, there was a whole different ideology being imported into the country. And the Pakistan that I grew up in, uh, which was pluralistic, which was uh, uh, gender friendly, I went to a convent college, women were pretty independent, was suddenly changing into this whole Arab ideology. And uh, we had, uh, uh, I was mentioning that in my articles and my talks, and we were looking at the communities that were here, and we were, we were beginning to get concerned by some of the initial signs of something that was not quite right. So when 9-11 happened, it was obviously, it was shocking, but not entirely surprising. And, uh, you know, it, the first weekend after 9-11, a friend of mine who uh, was a minister at the United Church here in Canada said to me, I need a someone, a Muslim to come and speak to my congregation and I would prefer if it was a woman, Rahil, come and, come and say something. And, um, you know, I was just as shattered as everyone else, but I went. And, uh, you know, it seemed that after that, I was standing in a church pulpit almost every Sunday trying to, trying to uh, make some sense out of the, the confusion that was all around. And uh, it just seemed that, you know, it was now necessary to speak out loud and clear to both the Muslim communities as well as the uh, not Muslim communities because it was important to put this whole conversation in a balance. You know, people were scared, they were angry, they were afraid, and everybody had a right to be that way. So what I see was lacking here in Canada because of political correctness was dialogue. Right. Uh, it just, you know, the conversation was not happening as it's not happening even now. Right. It's not something that has drastically changed. But I felt that it was important for me to, to, to put my hand out first and say, hey, we have to talk. And it doesn't matter, good, bad, or ugly, whatever your fears, whatever your concerns, whatever your criticism, let's talk about it. 
because it has to come from within the faith. And you know, since then, it's since then it's like I've been on a roller coaster and I can't get off. Now, do it's, you feel? Sorry to interject. Do you feel that? Uh, I mean, the the general landscape for that engagement that you're seeking is it improving or is it worsening? Well, it's a little bit of both. So uh, the so-called war on terror obviously hasn't worked because it's a war of ideologies. Uh, you know, you have the West rushing in with uh, with weapons and armies. That's not the way it works. And we said this right after 9-11 as well, that it is an ideology. And it's an ideology that has been um, active for about 35 years now. It's not something that's just happened. It didn't happen just at 9-11. It was building up and we were giving the warning signs. We were saying the writing is on the wall. There is something terrible happening. This ideology that is being poured into the West, uh, you know, on the backs of these petrodollars. So in some ways, I would say that we have been forced to have a conversation because things are getting really bad. But the situation as far as the radicalization of my faith are much worse because, you know, we've had ISIS since then. And, uh, all sorts of uh, traumas and tragedies happening in the Middle East. Now, do you, when you say ideology, are you referring, say, to Wahhabism coming out of well, Saudi Arabia? You're right. Yeah. So, but, and, and but I hope, I'm not referring only to Wahhabism. Right, but okay. So, I'm sorry. Let me let me just uh, yeah. ask the question. So, do you think that all those various strains of Islam, whether we call it radical Islam or or extremist or whatever the qualifier is. Ultimately, though, it is coming out of the Islamic text. Do you, do you concede that or do you think it is a misinterpretation or a mistranslation? Or what's your perspective on how each of those manifestations of extremism are linked to Islam? They are linked to Islam. They are coming from the house of Islam. Uh, to some extent, there are misinterpretations because if you take a text out of historical context and if you take you know, a text just at random, it can mean something entirely different. But obviously it is there and therefore it is being misquoted. But there is a lot of uh, so, uh, support for, for these actions from Sharia, right. uh, you know, which is uh, Islamic law, but which was, you know, made, put into place a hundred or so years after the death of the Prophet. So it's man-made law but it's being passed off as divine law. So even within the text from which the uh, justifications of this violence are being taken is, uh, you know, it's very confusing for people because it's not as though it's only being taken from one text. Right. It's been taken from Hadith, it's been taken from Sharia, and it has been manipulated for the use of the people who want to use it for nefarious purposes. As in political Islam, he means, right? So, As I mean, in political Islam. I mean, what I like to do to help many of the viewers who may not have our respective backgrounds and perhaps knowledge in this particular field, uh, I mean, Islam incorporates both a spiritual element and a political element. And the spiritual element is the one that, of course, we'd like to see most Muslims practicing seriously because that's one that even atheists can get behind. There's a spiritual, beautiful element, uh, monotheistic, that we can all uh, support, even if we're non-believers. But, of course, we can't deny the fact that the political Islam is itself an inextricable part of Islam. So then the question becomes, if you don't mind me asking you a personal question, is then how do you take the, the, the collectivity of text? whether it be the Hadith, the Qur'an, the Sirah, uh, Sharia, 
and then reconcile that with the way in which you practice your faith? Is it that you engage very much like other people do in in singular cherry picking where here are the five parts that I like and so I will get behind those. Here are the five parts that I don't like. I choose to ignore them. What's the mechanism by which you navigate through this issue? Well, uh, you know, within the 1.6 billion or more Muslims there are in the world, there are many different paths to God. And for me, growing up, Islam is a way of life, a path that is that leads to God. It's essentially a belief in monotheism. Essentially, that's it. And, and you know, God's creation. And as a believer, uh, for me, it's not difficult to separate the spiritual and the political. I don't want to politicize my faith. For me, the spiritual aspect is enough. And I think people have the individual choice to decide whether they're going to politicize the faith or whether they're going to fo- fo- follow the spiritual part. Now, you look at the Sufis, for example, who are the mystics in Islam, who are peace-loving, who are wonderful people, who are not at all politicized. They they don't even bring in the politics. And so they have chosen to follow the spiritual part. Whereas you have people like Al-Qaeda and ISIS and all these extremist groups who have chosen to ignore completely the spiritual aspect of the faith and just focus on political Islam. And political Islam is not for... Uh, betterment of the soul or the or the human being. It is for for uh, hegemony over over others. It is for power and control. So uh, you know, I have a, a particular idea that it's patriarchy, power, and politics that has brought uh, political Islam to where it is today, which is it has become a violent ideology. And spiritual Islam is the antidote to it. Spiritual Islam is, is what I follow very deeply. And that is the what is needed. We need that to be the louder narrative. But it isn't. But now what happens? So in your case, or in the Sufis case, uh, or in the ISIS guy's case, uh, they decide individually, uh, you know, which version, which parts to follow or not. But is there a way... Uh, if we are discussing, let's say, the official doctrinal reform of Islam, if we can agree that there might be some parts that need reformation, is there a tool by which one can disarm those parts that you and I and other secular liberal people would would not want to support? Or is it always going to come down to singular individual choices of people saying, I'll do this, I'll ignore that? How do we, how do, we do that? Well... It is problematic and the problem lies in the fact that unlike Christianity, in Islam we don't have uh, organized or uh, clergy. You know, we, the, the idea of course was a very good idea. The idea was that every individual would read, understand and implement the Quran or the, you know, the advice into their lives in a very compassionate and merciful way. But of course it works the other way as well because as you pointed out, people can cherry pick and they do. But the idea is not to cherry pick. We do hope that, uh, you know, Islam is a young religion. Uh, you, you know that the Christian reform took many, many hundreds of years. It was, uh, it was violent, it was difficult, and, but somebody had to sow those seeds. So in this movement that we have started together with Zudi Jasser and Asra Nomani and other movers and shakers and thinkers called the Muslim Reform Movement, the idea is to bring out those issues and those notions and put them aside. And I'll give you a particular example. One example which we have been talking about for a long time and now we've implemented it 
into the declaration of the Muslim reform movement is the idea of armed jihad. Now, armed jihad existed in the 7th century. It was a necessity because that was a way of life. There were no boundaries, no nation states, no borders. These were tribes who only knew how to deal with each other through warfare. So armed jihad may have been valid there, but it's no longer valid now because we are living in nation states, in countries with boundaries, the UN, and so on. So what we are like trying to ask our religious leadership is to uh, denounce the notion of armed jihad and say, Let's bring Islam and Muslims into the 21st century. That is no longer valid. Hold on, stop, stop there. So how, we can denounce it all we want, yes. but is the mechanism to denounce it one that is rooted in the language of the religion? Or is it just a bunch of folks in a very earthly manner saying, I'm just going to renounce, uh, denounce that part of the religion without using doctrinal tools? That's what we, we're... Okay, yes. go ahead. Go ahead. And, and you're absolutely right. We need to do it using doctrinal tools, which is why it is not up to me to do it because I'm not an Islamic scholar. This has to be done through the Islamic scholars and through the religious leadership. All we can do is light a fire under their feet and hope that with enough lobbying and with enough work, this will be done. Now, the movement has started and the work has started in the point that we have been able to approach different mosques and present this to them and say, that, you know, come on, guys, you need, you need to take a look at this and you need to be part of this movement. When a movement becomes big enough and enough people are involved and enough people are speaking up, eventually the doctrinal work, the work of the scholars and the work of the, of, of the religious leadership will have to follow that. Right. What we don't have at the moment is the mass following. Because as I said, this is very new. Right. Islam is a young religion. It's only the first time in my lifetime that we are even able to publicly speak about the idea of a reform. In uh, some parts of the world, you could get killed for this. Of course. And, you know, it's considered apostasy and blasphemy. So we're hopeful that, you know, through the work of uh, Western Muslims, we will be able to move this ahead. So voices like yours, like Salim Mansour, like Tariq Fatah, how are you received within the landscape of Muslim Canadians. Of course, there are going to be guys that despise you, others that support you, but if you are, I mean, not putting percentages on it, but you get the sense that most people are behind you but might be quiet about it, or is the tsunami wave very much against you? Well, there are, I would say that among the people that we know, now I can't speak for the other two, but you know, we modern progressive liberal Muslims, peace-loving Muslims, are very much behind us. But you are right, the large majority is silent. They are what we call the silent majority and they are part of the problem because they are scared, they don't want to speak out, they don't want to um, upset the status quo, you know, they need a social life and they want to be liked. Now the, the work that we are doing is not necessarily warm and cozy. Uh, you know, there is a defense mechanism because for you know, 1400 years, Muslims have been brainwashed into believing that, okay, this is exactly what it is. Now, there was a time when reason and logic, when debate and discussion was very active. And in the seventh, uh, 17th century, it was closed and it was said that no more ishtihad, no more reason and logic. This is the dogma and this is how you follow it. And then to top it off, the Wahhabis came up with this doctrine that they are the only right followers. So the first thing is to, to um, embrace and to acknowledge that there is diversity within Islam. There are 72 denominations and people can 
worship in any way they want. We are worshiping the same God. They should have the right to worship any way they want. That's not for me to judge. As long as it's not violence, as long as it's not being forced on anyone. Right. You know. So, so that's the first thing that we say in our declaration that that diversity needs to be acknowledged, each one to their to their own path. But of course, the 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 major pillars of the faith are the same for everyone, and you know, as you say, the doctrinal changes have to come with time. Now, there are some reform groups who are actually in the process of uh, sort of writing a reform version of the Quran. Right. How well received that will be, time will tell. Uh, you know Dr. Tawfiq Hamid, he has translated a very different version. But the main thing is that we are discussing it, we are yeah. debating it. The conversation is now very much on the front burner. And uh, most important for us is the issue of women's rights, of gender equality. And that is something that we can discuss and debate and talk about. And that is where the change will come. So let's talk, since you're talking about women's rights, let's talk about your, well, I say your, but it was a collective effort, your documentary, Honor Diaries. Tell us a bit about that. Well, Honor Diaries was um, uh, produced uh, and, you know, my organization, Muslims Facing Tomorrow, actually helped uh, support it, was one of the partners. And there were 30 partners that came together, both Muslim and non-Muslims, women's groups and other human rights organizations. And this was the first effort ever to, to create awareness about uh, honor-based violence. And honor-based violence, for the sake of your viewers, in our understanding with the film is uh, honor killings, forced and underage marriage, and female genital mutilation. Now the third one, female genital mutilation, is on the rise in a very, very alarming way. There are almost half a million cases in the United States of America of women who are subject to or have been uh, mutilated. So we're talking large numbers. It's happening in Canada, it's happening all over the world. So uh, when Honor Diaries was released uh, on International Women's Day in 2013, it was huge because this was the first time that Muslim women were actually speaking about the issue and not just speaking about it, but it was a call to action. Right. You know, the, but these were, some of the women had been victims, some of us were just activists who were involved in the movement. And since then, it has become a huge movement where victims have come forward and started speaking and lobbying and rallying and laws have been changed and it has gone global. So it just tells you that when you start a movement, there is a lot of pushback and there was. Right. There was hostility, there was pushback, uh, you know, people wanted to shut up screenings. But well, at I, my university, right, you told me offline, maybe you could talk about that, but yeah. at Concordia University, what, what happened there? Tell us about that. Well, well that, that, that's a whole long story. Okay. We'll, we'll discuss it at some other time. But okay. a lot of academic institutions were very hesitant, hesitant because they don't want to, again, you know, this is political correctness gone bad. I mean, here is a documentary that shows eloquent, educated, brilliant Muslim women speaking about an issue which I think is such a positive outlook because it's not that you are seeing oppressed women. These are really powerful women. But for some reason, because we talked about the fact that this is predominant in Muslim-majority societies, which is a fact right. that you can't deny. So you mean, hold on, so you mean Reza Aslan is wrong? I'm, I'm, I'm being <laughs> <laughs> He could be wrong? 
Of course, he could be wrong. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm being facetious. Yes, I, I, I think almost could... everything that he's ever said is wrong, but go ahead. Well, you know, there are apologists and there are apologists and there are those who think that they have to defend the faith. So one thing I've said oh, absolutely clearly is I don't need to defend my faith. <laughs> you know, this is not about defending the faith or being an apologist. I am, we need to speak the truth. We need to talk about the facts on the ground because otherwise nothing will ever change. So the situation of women's rights is just as touchy-feely as the situation of radical Islam, which, you know, none of the, the world leaders can articulate in one sentence, uh, you know, because they're so afraid that they're going to, to offend someone. I think the time has come that we need to offend a few. We need to be very uh, aggressive about this uh, idea that if we don't talk about it, then you will, and you will be called an Islamophobe. Well, incidentally, political correctness not only, of course, applies to the issue that we're discussing today. I recently did a, I, I gave an invited lecture at the University of Ottawa on political correctness, specifically in the context of campuses, university campuses, not necessarily relating to Islam, just things like microaggressions and safe spaces and trigger warnings and, you know, charges of cultural appropriation, right? If you eat hummus, you better be Lebanese, otherwise you're appropriating my culture. So it's almost become a, a satire, right, where people become so stifled at the mere thought of potentially somebody accusing them of being a racist or a bigot. So this this whole notion of political correctness is a real cancer to free people. Um, oh, it is, and it's gone nuts. Yeah. I mean, this is over the top. You talked about uh, universities. I was shown a list of words that can't yeah. be used, of dresses that can't be worn. I mean, this, especially in place, uh, places of education, which are the bastions of free speech, and we always looked up to Western educational institutions as being the bastion of free speech, but it's being stifled everywhere. And that, of course, is part of the larger problem. And I was going to say that, you know, uh, in a sense, my reality, having escaped the Middle East, uh, I'm particularly disheartened by the things that I see, because I know what exists out there. And then to see these types of uh, nefarious forces trying to, you know, chip away at our freedoms here is so threatening to me, right? Because, you know, I thought I had put that stuff behind me in the 70s, right? And yet here it is. It's slowly following you and I. Uh, we thought we had escaped all that. To talk. I mean, I was going to say I can ditto exactly what you're exa saying. You know, I mean, I, I, I think I've said the story before publicly, but it's it's worth repeating. Uh, when we first moved to uh, Montreal from Lebanon, uh, the the reflex of my mother was to oftentimes when she would speak to me on the phone would speak she'd speak in code because she's thinking that maybe there are the what they're called the mukhabarat like the the the, the government apparatus they're listening in. And I, you know, we'd have to joke with her and tell her, hey, mom, we're no longer in Lebanon. You could speak openly here. But that's the reflex that you have, right? Where be, beware, because any word that you say out of place, even in a place supposedly as tolerant and progressive as Lebanon was in the context of the Middle East, you still have to be careful. And now we have the same thing happening all over again, 40 years later here in Montreal and in Toronto, right? Absolutely. And as I said to you in the beginning, when you come from these societies, freedom is sometimes hard to digest. Right. And, you know, you think that this is unreal. And But, of course, we came here for these freedoms. Right. I mean, as a Muslim woman, I can only have a voice in a country like, you know, in a country like North America because I could never do the work I do here uh, back in Pakistan. Now, are so, you able to go back to Pakistan today 
and feel safe, or or you you don't even try to go back there. I do. You I do. do okay. Back, but 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 there is a but here. Okay. I'm not an activist. I do not do any activism. I okay. do not uh, do any public appearances. Nothing. I just go there because my family is there, and I go to visit them, and I do not involve myself in in any. Kind but of they're thing. aware that you are an activist in Canada. Or, to or, some extent. Okay. What they don't know is not going to hurt them. <laughs> <laughs> All so. right. Well, let's hope that they don't watch this clip in back in Pakistan somewhere in Lahore. Well, you know, uh, another thing is that I uh, stand up for what I say. I'm never afraid to speak out. And I am uh, at this wonderful age in my life where I don't really worry about uh, being popular. I'd rather be truthful. And, you know, it's... Uh, I, I often give the example that, uh, you know, accommodation is great. If you invite guests in your house, you want to accommodate their needs. But if they start rearranging your furniture, uh, you know, you have to stand up and say enough is enough. And I think the point has come where we have to say enough. Uh, what is happening in the, the Muslim world everywhere is uh, not acceptable at all. And, you know, we are very small fry, but every voice counts. Right. Every person counts. Every word counts. And we have to continue, you know, I keep on writing, I keep on speaking about these issues and I'm not afraid to stand behind what I say because uh, it can be challenged, but it's the truth. Right. Now, let me ask you about a very earthly, pragmatic issue that we're facing in Canada. And that is that recently um, Justin Trudeau came to power. For those of you who are not Canadian, he's our new prime minister for, the, I think it's now maybe about 100 days. Uh, he has certain... Uh, political beliefs uh, that he holds on to, very cherished beliefs, one of which is this sort of idea of multiculturalism, which uh, Salim and, and I got into quite heavily because, of course, he's written about this professionally. Uh, so one of the issues, of course, as you know, but some of our viewers may not know, is that we've got this huge influx, I mean, not, nothing as big as what's happening in Europe, but by our standards, uh, up to 25,000 Syrians, possibly more, coming in. Now, of course, some people will argue wrongly, no, shut the door down to everybody. But in equal measure, others will argue if you raise any concern that this is a potential problem, then you're a racist and an Islamophobe and a bigot. How do we navigate through this very delicate situation, according to you? Well, this is the whole thing again. We shouldn't look upon it as a very delicate situation. What it is, is this humanitarian crisis. And we should never put aside our humanity and our humanitarian cause. It's important to help people. But there is a way of going about it. It is the process which should be discussed. It's not the lives of the people which are at stake. So, um, again, we have to look at the security of the country. We have to see, uh, you know, is it too fast, too soon? Why, th there was no need to rush into it. Because while these people were in refugee camps, their lives were not in danger overnight. Whereas if you look at the Yazidis, for example, their lives are in danger overnight. They have no place to go. They're being killed. They're being raped. Um, I would like to have seen the same kind of importance being given to uh, the Yazidis, to the persecuted Christian community of the Middle East, right. uh, you know, to other persecuted communities as well. And more importantly for me as a Muslim, God, is the question is that why did we not ask the Muslim countries like Saudi Arabia and Qatar and Kuwait if they would like to take some Muslim refugees? They've taken in zero right now, correct? They've taken in zero. <laughs> and since we know that money is their God and that's all important to them, 
uh, there could have been a way of offering them technical help, of offering them finances, of encouraging them. But that conversation never took place. Because look at it from the point of view of the refugees as well. Being largely Muslim, the assimilation and integration and settlement would have been much easier in countries that were similar to where which background that they came from. I mean, I came to Canada as an immigrant with my family. And trust me, I had traveled to Canada. I knew about the West, but still it was hard for the first year to settle. And that's what happened. So these are the, the issues that should have been discussed. Discussed. There should have been some large roundtables, groups, discussions where we should have been part of the dialogue and discussion. And why the rush? They could have taken men, uh, women and children first. Right. The most uh, the ones who are the most vulnerable. Uh, then we could have taken families. Then, you know, the single men is something that should have been considered last. So as I said, there is a process to everything and that process should have been discussed in detail. Uh, you know, uh, using this as an election prop was right. perhaps not the most uh, sensible thing to do. And, uh, you know, you look at Europe. Uh, Sweden, which has taken the largest amount of uh, asylum seekers is now wanting to deport 80,000 of them. Right. I was in Sweden two weeks ago, and the situation there is terrible. Yes. You know, there are areas of Sweden oh, yeah. where, where uh, you know, people who are not Muslim don't even want to go. Do we want this happening in Canada? Right. No, this is my country. I love it. The safety and security of this land is my priority, our priority. Well, and, and I think an important uh distinction to make, which oftentimes people uh, kind of uh, avoid, is people think that when you're talking, say, about the 25,000 Syrians that are coming here, that our concern is only to look for ISIS members, whereas in reality, the danger is, is much greater in that you have a, cult, a, a clash of values. Uh, never mind whether the source is cultural or religious. Of course, it's it's a combination of both. But the bottom line is our society is built on certain fundamental, non-negotiable, uh, secular, liberal values. Now, when you're beginning 25,000 people, I can't know what percentage of those harbor profoundly anti-Semitic views. Now, I can predict what they are. I come from that region. It's not going to be a pretty number. I can predict what num what the numbers will be on homo homophobic tendencies. I can predict what the tendencies will be regarding the rights of women when it compares to men. And so when you're letting in 25,000 people, it's not solely about stopping the really nasty ISIS guy. It's about whether such values can coexist or can be assimilated into, as you said, our beautiful country. If yes, welcome in, my brother. If no... You're not welcome, my brother, right? So that's yes, you know, absolutely. Somebody asked me yesterday, so you were an immigrant and why, are, you know, how do you feel? And I said, yes, but we came here to embrace the values of this country. And exactly. I say that very proudly. And we have, uh, you know, our faith is not compromised. And the, the important thing to remember also is that it's not some somebody that we are importing from outside. The, the radical Islamists are right here in North America. You know, there are three strains that affect most people's thinking. And those three strains are, uh, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood ideology, the uh, Wahhabi ideology, and Khomeiniism, you yes. know, which is... Uh, so So between these three, <laughs> there, there are people who are completely affected by this. And these groups 
these organizations and some of these mosques are waiting you know to embrace the the people who are going to come in so that they can then turn them towards their own way of thinking and their ideology and you're right we have to look at how uh, people are going to embrace the values that that Canada stands for right and uh, it's important that that we always talk about that because you know these are the values that we came here for now what what's your going back to uh, mr. Trudeau I mean I know you can't read what's in his heart or his mind but you know we, we, we all can analyze patterns what's what's your sense of this guy I mean he seems to be so profoundly bent on be on exhibiting cues of Islamophilia right I mean there isn't a radical mosque that he hasn't rushed to to be you know seen within a photo op right I mean there's a classic one you may or may not know this there was a ranking at some point that came out I don't remember the exact details but of the you know the eight most radical mosques in the world and one of them was in Montreal uh, and he was there right so how do you explain this I mean clearly he must have advisors that could advise him properly. So how do you explain the fact that he seems so hell-bent on consistently making the wrong choices? Well, uh, you know, advisors are extremely important, and I think that that's something that we must take into consideration. And you have to remember that I am a mother and a grandmother. I like to give benefit of the doubt, and we would like to uh, give time to see how things pan out. I mean... This is a reality. This is it is what it is. Canada is a democracy, and they voted him in, and we have to give him a chance uh, to see how this will go. Spoken like a real diplomat. <laughs> well, um, I mean, I don't think we really have a choice. What are we going to do? We have to wait and see. Uh, I hope he hears the voices from all sides. I. Uh, you know, would would like to think that he is a good person. I'd like to give him the benefit of the doubt. And he may be naive, but, you know, one learns. Right. <laughs> Standing on your feet, you learn. Right. All of us have. This is a journey. Right. Uh, it's not a journey that I necessarily wanted to be on. I would much rather have been uh, the author of a romantic best-selling novel. <laughs> but I find myself on this path of... Uh, you know, activism and literally it's, there's no choice because I could not sleep at night if I thought that I wasn't doing my little bit. You know, I, it's, it's exactly what I tell my wife when she tells me, you know, you, you lead a very, very busy full life as a professor and as a scientist. Why do you need to take this stuff on? And I say exactly the words you use. I couldn't live with myself if whatever small platform I may have to contribute to the discussion I didn't do it then I couldn't sleep so you're so, so how do we get people to jump on exactly that feeling that you have because I often get emails from people tons of emails and I'm sure you do uh, where people say look I want to get engaged I want to get involved and at the very least I tell them well you know what just be part of the discussion don't sit quietly is there anything else that you could recommend for people to feel empowered to contribute to the discussion Absolutely. You know, not everyone can be an activist because right. it comes with its own set of risks right. and it comes um, with, with a lot of issues. So that's fine. I respect that. But you're right. I expect people to speak out when they're seeing justice, not to be politically correct, not to be afraid to ask the right questions and actually always ask questions. Now, you know, we are a voting community. You need to choose uh, leaders who you know are going to do what is right for the country, what is better for the people in the long run. And one thing that 
I sometimes feel that we lack as Canadians is a long-term vision. You know, we are living from month to month or week to week. We're worried about our finances and our mortgages, and that's also understandable. Everybody has to do that. But let's look 10 years ahead and see where will we be 10 years from now. And let's always keep Europe as an example in front of us. And I can tell you, we never want to become right. what Europe has become. And right now, I believe we have a chance. We've got a window of opportunity. Canada is a country that the whole world is looking at. For example, and you know, they're looking to see what we're going to do. So we have this window of opportunity. We can bring about change. We have the freedom, the liberty to speak out and also to uh, you know, critique human rights abuses when we see them happening, even if it's our own people doing it, right. without fear of being slapped. So you're, you're, generally speaking, you're optimistic about the trajectory that certainly Canada is taking, but more generally the West is facing? Well, if I wasn't optimistic, I wouldn't be able to do the work that I do. So sure. it's, a, it's, it's a default. Right. You know, yeah. I am optimistic because I'm an eternal optimist and I do this work because I have hope. And I think that every uh, faith community has been through its trials and tribulations and they have been able to come out of it. So I think in, in that sense, a, a dialogue and a conversation with Christians and Jews and people of the Abrahamic faith is so important. Right. We need to talk more. We need to meet more. There's too much division and ghettoization about, you know, this battle about my God is better than your God. Right. For God's sake, it's one God. <laughs> you right. know, if you believe in God, if you don't believe in God, you believe in humanity. Right. It doesn't matter. The goal is the same. Right. We want to live in a peaceful world. We want to leave a peaceful world for our future generations. And the future generation is where the main concern is. Our youth yeah. are being radicalized at a rate that is frightening. When you have... Uh, West youth from America and Canada going to join ISIS, including women. Every parent in this world should be waking up in the morning and saying, how did this happen? Right. Yeah, absolutely. But, but we are not having those conversations. They're few and far between. Yeah. Well, hopefully we're contributing to that conversation. I certainly uh, hope so. Tell me before we end it, this has been fantastic. Uh, are there any projects that people might not yet be aware of that you're working on that you'd like to take this opportunity to uh, promote? Well, I'd like to invite them to our website, which is the uh, Muslim uh, Muslims Facing Tomorrow, okay. which is my organization. And there they're going to find a slew of very enlightening articles from uh, by uh, Salim Mansoor, by me, by other authors. They'll see our mission and vision. They can email us, join us, join the Muslim Reform Movement because that invites non-Muslims, Muslims, everybody, believers, non-believers to support it as a movement. And that has been fantastic. It's on Facebook and it has a website of its own. And we are now writing letters to mosques and Islamic institutions, offering them this declaration and saying, are you with us? Uh, so, you know, the, the work has started, the movement has started. And all this together, there is the video called By the Numbers, which I don't know if you've seen. Which I've is seen parts of it, yes. A breakdown, a breakdown of statistics of how people think, and that's an important wake-up call. Uh, so, you know, just see what's around us, and then, um, you know, make sure that we have a respectful conversation. That is important, because, you know, hate and bigotry exists, and people have a right, but it's not. it doesn't solve the problem. Right. Right. When we talk about the problems, we have to offer solutions. Otherwise, there's no point. It's a waste of your time and my time if we are not offering solutions. So we have to look at solutions. We have to see what is the next step. 
and the next step is to continue the dialogue and conversation and to bring other people into it as much as we can. Uh, on that note, I'd like to personally thank you for your courage, your heroism, your activism. A true delight to speak to you. I'm sure we'll speak again. Stay on the line. I'm going to stop the taping. Thank you so much, Rahil. It was a real pleasure chatting with you. Uh, talk to you soon. Thank you for having me. My pleasure.